You know, the, the mission of the Compass Church, it's at all four campuses. Hey, good morning to all of you at 95th, Bolingbrook, Wheaton, Hobson. The mission is to love him more, so more love him. We're dead serious about accomplishing that mission. Those are not mere words. To love him more, so more love him. So more love him. That's kind of quantitative, and we can tell by attendance whether more are coming to love him. But the first part, to love him more, that's qualitative. That's about growth in your relationship with the Lord. And we are dead serious about being a church where that's being accomplished. How do you measure, you know, whether people are really growing spiritually or not? It's a challenge. Well, one of the things that helps us is the annual spiritual growth survey. And so welcome to that day. Uh, Once a year at this time, we take just three minutes at the beginning of my message for all of us, without exception, even if you're a guest, we'd love for you to, to fill one of these out. So go ahead, at all four campuses, pull out your spiritual growth survey. Eight simple questions, anonymous, you know. We don't want you to feel like you got a lie here. So let's just take your name off of it and tell us the truth. It's so simple. The, the first, this is probably the one you're tempted to lie on the most, your age group. Which age group are you a part of? And then what campus and what service do you go to? You'll see there each campus and then the services. Just check a box. About you, uh, how long have you attended the Compass Church? And for those of you at Bolingbrook, if you were a part of New Song, those years count, okay? Pre-merger, those count, so tell us. How often do you attend the Compass Church? This is uh, just your regularity and attendance, what best describes. Question number three is how much do you read the Bible? One of our priorities is to pursue him daily in Bible study and prayer. And so here you may say, you know, I I read the Bible less than daily, but more than weekly. Here, check the box that most closely describes your practice, okay? Even though acknowledging... They don't perfectly describe your practice. Question number four. My involvement in small group or mid-sized group is best described by? I'm in a group. I once was, but I am not. I've never been. Number five. I volunteer in a ministry at the Compass Church. What, what answer best describes your level of volunteerism? Six. My experience in inviting church people. You know, we we talk about the importance of being out there and helping people far from God draw near. Have you never done it? Has it been a long time since you've done it? Or have you done it in the last year, invited someone to church? And then seven is about your financial uh, contributions to our church. How would you best describe your level of financial commitment? And then number eight is very simply that basic question of how are you doing with God? Would you use the term growing, plateaued, or weak, or in decline? Uh, Go ahead and fill that out. Thank you, people, for doing that. Well, we do. Ushers, if you wouldn't mind, come forward and pass these cards to the aisles, and we're going to collect them all. We compare the data from this year to every year. It's been three years. We've done the exact same card. And so because of that, we can compare year over year and see, are, are we doing better? And what areas are we doing better? Are we growing? Are we failing? And it's just extremely helpful. So thank you very much for filling that out.
All right. Well, as we begin, I want to tell you about probably a guy you've never heard of, but a bit of a hero to me. I, I, I'm a wannabe Indiana Jones guy at heart. I love adventure. I love history. I love discovery. And here is a real-life Indiana Jones. His name was James Rendell Harris. Lived about 100 years ago in Philadelphia. He was a Bible teacher at this little college in Philadelphia named Haverford College. Loved the Lord, loved teaching the Bible, but more than teaching, he was an adventurer. And he had been reading about this place. This picture is of St. Catherine's Monastery in this obscure desert in Egypt. Friends, it looks like a compound. It does have a wall built around it. It's 1,500 years old. Can you imagine a building that old? We get impressed if a building, that house is 100 years old. Wow, 1,500 years old. It uh, is the oldest monastery in all the world. It has, it boasts the largest and oldest collection of ancient Christian writings, manuscripts. And this treasure of manuscripts is guarded by a dozen long-bearded Greek monks, all right? And unfortunately, these Greek monks can read the Greek stuff, but there's other manuscripts of other ancient languages. They can't even read what they've got. They don't even know what they've got. Now, James Randall Harris, he is a linguist, and he knew he could read and understand what they couldn't. And so his college gave him a four-month leave of study, study leave, and he kissed his wife and children goodbye for four months. How would that fly in your house? Huh? Got on a boat. He sailed across the Atlantic through the Mediterranean. In Cairo, he hired a Bedouin. These are these wandering desert dweller guys. This Bedouin guide helped him load up camels, and the two of them set off across the vicious desert of Egypt. Eight days on sand without seeing a human being. Can you imagine that? Uh, eating by a campfire, huddling in their tent in the vicious sandstorms of the Egyptian desert. And finally, after eight days of travel, they arrive at this monastery. Thankfully, the monks were delighted to see them. You know, those monks get like no guests ever. And so they opened the gates, took him in. James lived there for months. He spoke Greek, and so he quickly bonded with these monks, developed a relationship of trust. And one day, one of them said, I know what you'd like to see. Come here. And brought him to this ancient door with a big rusty padlock that they opened and took off, cranked the door open. All they had was oil lamps. Can you imagine pushing through the cobwebs, through this tunnel, like a labyrinth leading into the bowels of this ancient fortress? They pass a crypt where there is a stack of skulls. You know, the great honor for these monks who live and die at St. Catherine's is that we'll put your skull on the pile. Oh, yeah. And so there are all these skulls of these ancient monks. They go past the crypt and they keep going and finally arrive at this inner room filled with dust-covered treasure chests. And treasure they were as they opened them up. James Randall Harris could not believe these documents, handwritten ancient documents. This was heaven to him. And for weeks, 
he entered this room with his lamp and read what had not been read in nearly 2,000 years by anyone. And the greatest of his discoveries in that room was a letter by a guy by the name of Aristides, a letter from Aristides to Hadrian, the Roman emperor. Aristides was a famous philosophy professor at the University of Athens in the first century. Aristides was was probably born at the time that the apostle Paul brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city of Athens. So Aristides grew up and knew the first generation of Christians, and he loved them. He was mesmerized by the community of these Christians. Aristides couldn't believe their love for each other, their interdependence and devotion to one another. It just stirred him deeply. And Aristides felt so bad because Hadrian, the emperor, was horribly persecuting the Christians. So Aristides said, maybe I can use my prestige as a renowned professor and write a letter to the emperor to get him to soften his posture towards these Christians. And that's the letter that James was holding. He was reading this ancient description of the first generation of Christians, and I suspect tears flowing down his face as he realized, I'm reading these words, and the first person to read them in nearly 2,000 years. This document has been lost for all this time. I read it to you now. Letter from Professor Aristides to Emperor Hadrian. Aristides says, These Christians love one another. They show great affection to widows. They rescue the orphan who is being treated harshly. He who has much gives to he who has little, and this done without boasting. When they see a stranger, they'll take him into their house and treat him like family. They consider each other brothers, not in the natural sense, but as children of the Heavenly Father. And whenever one of their poor dies, each gives as they are able to ensure that their friend has an honorable burial. If one of them is arrested on account of their devotion to their Christ, they visit the imprisoned. They ensure that all of his needs are met. They do all that is possible to free their friend from his imprisonment. If one of their own is without food, they will fast for two or three days in order to have food for the one without. As they daily gather to eat together, they always pray, thanking God for their food and drink. They always praise God for his kindness and love. Oh, emperor, I wish that you would study this new people and see that there is something divine in the midst of them. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, those Christians in the first century in Athens were getting it right. It was stunningly beautiful. The ways of God, the heart of God, functioning in people living life together. Now, I wish that... uh, that the emperor would have studied the people and seen that something divine was in the midst of them. He did not. Hadrian continued to persecute the Christians, killing them. But Aristides continued to study them and was so taken by Christ on display in community that Aristides gave his life to Jesus Christ, became a Christian, joined the community, and lived the remainder of his days devoted to the cause of, of Christ. Isn't that beautiful?
You say, Jeff, why are you telling us this story when we're talking about heaven? Because at the core of what makes heaven extraordinary is community. Is this vision of God, of people dwelling together with love and devotion and interdependence and cooperation and weeping together with those who weep and rejoicing together with those who rejoice. That's God's plan for Athens then, but really for heaven as we arrive. In fact, today's message is entitled, The City of Heaven. And the centrality of this description of the city, the new Jerusalem, screams of God's vision that heaven wouldn't simply be a place where people are reconciled to God, but people are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. That we, as those who have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, would find a common bond with each other and develop the sweetest of friendships and community. That's the vision of God. So shall we? We've been studying in Revelation chapter 21. Today we're looking at three verses, 9, 8, or 9, 10, and 11. The Apostle John is given a tour of heaven. It's a vision, but God gave him a vision where an angel led him on a tour of heaven. And we come to the city. You ready? Come, the angel speaking, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the angel carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. Oh, friends, this is good stuff. Are you ready? Let's start with city of the holy city. All right. So again and again, in fact, 15 times in these last two chapters of the Bible, our eternal home is described as a city. What do you think about that? You know, I know there are some country bumpkins among us who are like, no, I hate cities, you know. Um, your, your, your hatred of cities may be at least in part due to the fact that all the cities we know today are marred by sin and failure. You know, we see things like crime and traffic and, uh, you know, uh, garbage and homelessness. All those things will be removed. All those problems fixed. This will be a city in its perfected expression. And what is a city? If you ever think about it, a city in its basic essence is people who have thought maybe... Life is better together. A city is people who could have and maybe were previously out and all alone, moving into the same proximity to share life in community. City is really that vision that maybe there's a protection we can enjoy. Maybe there's education that can come about. Maybe there's trade that we can benefit from. Maybe there's culture that can be enjoyed where there is art and there is music, and there are sports, and there is food that's all part of this shared life. And God loves that vision. And so God declares with crystal clarity that in heaven, relating to each other, living in the context of community will be at its heart. Some people mistake, like, and maybe this is like extreme introverts. I thought in heaven everybody gets their own deserted island and no one ever has to see another human being. No. No, that's not right. Heaven is about relationships. Relationships at their very best. Someone asked me last night, 
Jeff, what about marriage? Will we be married in heaven? Jesus was very clear that the marriage covenant is limited to this earth, till death do us part. But that doesn't mean that our relationship with our spouse will be poor in heaven. My relationship with Jen in in heaven will be at an all-time high. The love, the devotion, it won't be marriage in this sense. It'll be some new commitment. But friends, all relationships are new and improved in heaven. We will enjoy not only God, but each other in God's perfected expression of community interdependence, cooperation, support, encouragement, laughter, life together. It's part of God's plan. Now, let's go to the next slide. This holy city, and this is weird, but on the glorious day, look at this, it'll be coming down out of heaven from God. We've already studied this in a previous message in this series, where on the, the, the inaugural day in the new earth, we will have a grand opening ceremony that will never be forgotten. In a miraculous display of God's power, a city will descend out of the sky and land on the new earth. The new Jerusalem, that's the city. And not only will a city descend out of the sky, I have to tell you more, it's a city on a mountain. The mountain itself will be descending out of the sky. How do we know it's a city on a mountain? Well, look at here. It says, he took me by the Spirit to a mountain, great and high, a mountain like he had never seen before. Yes, the new Jerusalem is on the mountain. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 24, there's a little more clarity. It says this mountain will be called Mount Zion, and the new Jerusalem will be built on Mount Zion. Cities built on mountains is not something that we in Chicagoland can identify at all. You know, if we have like a one-foot swell and land, ooh, look at that, you know. Here's a picture of the Almafi, how do I say that? Almafi, you guys have been there. Amalfi Coast in Italy. Uh, is that gorgeous or what? A, a city built into a mountainside like that is breathtaking. And this, that's nice human construction. God's construction. Will the houses that God builds be better? It says in Hebrews 11.10 that in this heavenly city, it is a city whose architect and builder is God. God loves when we build houses and buildings and skyscrapers, but he says, no offense, but I can do better. You wait and see. God's architectural design and uh, commitment will be incredible. You see the steep slope of this mountain here, but this is not high at all. You say, how high is the mountain that the new Jerusalem will be built on? Glad you asked. Well, in verse 16 of Revelation 21, the dimensions of the city are given, and it is 1,400 miles tall. You're like, what? I mean, this is mind-boggling. Like, Mount Everest is five and a half miles tall. This is 1,400. I mean, this is categories we can't even wrap our minds around. It would kind of be like Mount Everest being compared to uh, uh, Wilmot Mountain in Wisconsin. You ever been to Wilmot Mountain? It's a landfill that we call a mountain, you know, and it's a bump. And if that's all you know about mountains and then you see Mount Everest, you're like, whoa, I didn't even know things like that existed. That's that kind of experience. It's you know, just so tall. And not only tall, it is huge. Not only is it 1,400 miles tall, it's 1,400 miles wide and long. 
Uh, the city is so large that it's like comparable to the United States in its totality, a little less, but almost the size of the United States. It's huge! Uh, and it's glorious. And it'll take your breath away. And God loves it. When I say God loves it, let's go to the next slide. Next one here. Let's highlight this. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. How is this city described? It's God's bride. It's his wife. It's Jesus' wife. And you say, why is he using that language? The Lord is trying to convey the measure of his affection for this city. When the Lord looks at this city, his heart just beats and he says, ah, that's my bride. You're like, what does he love? Is it his architecture? That's part of it. But that's not the main thing. The thing that he really has burning affection for is community. It's his redeemed people sharing life together with his heart and his ways and beautiful expression. God just can't get enough of life together. I wonder if you love community, sharing life with people to that degree. Probably not. Why? Why does God love community so much? Well, there's a key right here. It says, it's shown with the glory of God. What is that describing? It is the city. The city shined with what? With the very glory of God. God's glory is his beauty, his character. And the city is revealing or shining with the very glory, the beauty, the character of God. Friends, what that's describing is that the community on display in the New Jerusalem is what God is made of. He's communal. He's got community as part of him. And that's why he's so passionate about it, because it's who he is. You say, what do you mean he's got it in him? I'm referring to the Trinity, the mysterious, confusing, and beautiful doctrine that our God is three in one. The Bible is so clear that though there's only one God, one being, there is a complexity, a mystery to his being in that he is three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so before he made anything, there was already love. Love within the community of God. There was already relationship. Community has always been a part of God. And so when he went made to make the world, his vision was that it would reflect him and his passion, that he made us relational. In fact, if you may recall, in uh, Genesis 1.26, way at the beginning, at the creation of the world, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Why us and our? Who's God talking to if he hasn't made anybody yet? He's talking to the members of the Trinity. It's God the Father speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The the triunal, communal nature of God is in that sentence. Let us make mankind in our image. The other thing the verse tells us is that we are made like him. And if he's all about relationship, we shouldn't be surprised that we've been made for relationship. This same... uh, Community coming right out of the heart of God is found in John 17, 21, where Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, was praying for us. And how did he pray for us? He prayed in this way. He said, Father, I pray that they will be one like we are one. Isn't that a great prayer? Jesus says, my vision for Christians and 
and Bolingbrook and 95th at Hobson and Wheaton is that they would find relational connection, that there would be a oneness to them that would reflect God the Father. Our oneness, Jesus said. It's in us first. May it be in them also. Friends, this is why God is so passionate about community. And this is why uh, that, that community called the New Jerusalem will be shining with the very glory of God himself on display. All right. I have one more uh, highlight I want to make, and that is the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's interesting. Why is God using an old name for a new city? Do you ever think about that? I mean, he's making something that's so beyond anything we've ever seen before. Why is he naming it Jerusalem? Here's why. There's this strong measure of connectivity between this life and that life. As if God's saying, what I started here, I'm going to finish there. Jerusalem was a vision of God for community. You remember Jerusalem's where the temple was, where God put the Ark of the Covenant in that temple, where God manifested his glory. God wanted to live as king in that city. And God said, it never worked out perfectly there, but I started there, and in heaven I will complete what I started. This continuation is also seen in a reference to Israel the nation. In fact, in verse 12 of Revelation 21, it says that the new Jerusalem will have 12 gates and above the gates will be the tribes of Israel. God says, the nation of Israel was to be a country devoted to me and my ways. And what I started doing community-wise there, I will bring to fruition in the new Jerusalem. Not only Israel and Jerusalem, but also uh, the church. Verse 14 of Revelation 21 says that the, the, the city wall at the foundation stones, there will be the names of the 12 apostles. 12 apostles were the guys who founded the church. And you say, what does the church today have to do with heaven then? Well, the community that God's going to bring to fruition then, he's starting to bring in the church today. God says, this is not, heaven's not a new commitment on my part to bring community. Heaven is the extension of my lifelong, history-long passion to build beautiful community. God has always been passionate about this. So that tells us, uh, this study of heaven as a place of great community tells us that this is God's passion then, and it's God's passion now. Now, some of you may say, I'll wait till the community then. You know, then there'll be no sin. People won't annoy me. Today, people annoy me. And so I'm just going to keep them at a distance. I've been burned. I had a bad small group experience. They were all crazies. I I, I just don't want to do it anymore. It's just too complex, and so I'm just going to hold people at a distance. Friends, you can't do that. Yes, this is marred by sin, but though a struggle, community is one of the most beautiful realities on this earth. And just waiting until that perfect expression of it doesn't reflect the heart of God. He says we must fight to build it today, realizing it will be expressed perfectly then. And so I have to ask, are you doing that? Is life together in relationships with others burning in your heart? Is it a major objective in your life? I saw the beauty of community on display on Monday. Uh, On Monday, uh, there was a, a couple, just incredibly dear friends, 
and their marriage was in crisis. And in this moment of crisis, the call for help went out. They wisely shot out texts of help to three friends. All three of us friends descended on their home on Monday night. They welcomed us with hugs. There was a heaviness in the air. We sat around in a circle, and there was great, courageous transparency. And there were lots of tears. And there was encouragement. And there was truth. There was wisdom. There was love. There was prayer. And there was hope. And when I left and went home, I was just like, God, thank you for Christian community. If this couple were isolated and did not have the joy of being part of a circle of Christian friends, where would they be? And I just had the sense that I had participated in something absolutely sacred, something divine. Remember what Aristides says? I I wish you would see there is something divine in their midst. It was God, and his heart lived out. Friends, don't give up on this great, passionate dream of God. Your part of his dream coming true. Let Let me offer you a closing challenge using a a hammer as an illustration. You know, if we're talking about building a great city, God is building this, constructing this city. The hammer, one of the most basic tools of construction. Yet, if you ever think about it, there are actually two tools in one in the claw hammer. Did you know that? There is the face which constructs, and there's the claw which takes apart. This connects, this disconnects. The, the claw, you drive nails that bring boards together. The, the, the head, excuse me. The claw pulls nails out that brings boards apart. And every single Christian is either here or here. And I wonder what you are. Are you a connector or a disconnector? You say, well, what does a connector do? Well, here's how you can tell a connector. This is someone, first of all, who fights for community in their family. They say, Lord, I know that family is part of your community vision, and so I'm going to fight for this marriage, and I'm going to fight for my relationship with these kids and these grandkids and these parents. Do you fight for relationship and family? And then people who fight for community pursue people at church, whether that be going out to lunch after church, whether that be calling someone up and saying, hey, can we do coffee? Whether that be getting in a group, You know, groups are one of the greatest ways we pursue community. I'm in a men's group that meets every single Wednesday morning for breakfast. I'm in a couples group. My wife and I host a couples group on Friday nights, every other Friday night at our home. But getting in a group is so central to God's vision for community. Another way we do community is being on the lookout for needs that we can help meet. Remember what Aristides says? That these people share life and they're so generous, helping one another. That generous helping people in need takes place in our church in two ways. One, the formal way, and that's benevolence. Uh, every week, people are writing checks within the memo. They write benevolence. And thousands and thousands of dollars are then distributed to families in need in our church through this formal ministry. It's a beautiful thing that comes right out of the heart of God. But it's not all through benevolence. A lot of the, the financial generosity is just 
direct. You know, people see a need and they'll respond saying, you know, we can help that person out and they give directly to them. Or maybe it's not money that they need, it's your skill that they need or your wisdom or your support or your love. But be on the lookout for need. And if you want to be a community builder, say, I'm going to look out and I'm going to step into need as I see it. One more way you can build community is fight to resolve conflict. Jesus called us to be peacemakers. And as you, you know, we Christians can get wonky and get all angry at each other and hurt each other. And if you see division and fractions, for you to step in and say, hey, let's sit down. I want to talk. Let's try to work this out. Let's confess sin and forgive one another. Be a peacemaker who fights to build bridges and restore relationships. So that's what someone who is fighting with God for what God loves looks like. You say, well, what's, what are people over here? What are the claw people like? Well, yes, those who say hurtful, careless words, those who slander, those who gossip. But it's not just those vicious things. You're on the destructive side if you're just remaining at a distance from people. You're like, no, 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 no. Don't put me in that category. But it's true. I'm going to be harsher. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Think with me. If all of us said, you know what? I'm just not going to pursue community. I'm going to hold people at a distance. What type of community would we be if we all had that mentality? We'd be a disconnected people. I was like that. There was a time where I'm like, you know, people annoy me. And they're bugging me. And I don't want to deal with their stuff. And I'm just going to hold them at a distance. And I was holding the hammer this way, if you will. And unknowingly, I was part of the problem. I was not in a group. I was not pursuing community. And God showed me the error of my ways. And there was a glorious moment of change where the hammer turned around. And I had a new commitment. And now I'll tell you, for the rest of my life, I will be devoted, as, until my dying day, I will be fighting to build what God loves by his strength and according to his ways. I will be fighting to help people connect in Christian community. Will you join me in that fight? God looks at the Compass Church at all four of our campuses, and he says, this is not a service people attend. That's maybe how it starts, but that's not my vision. I want them to be a people who share life together in friendship and sweet relationship. Will you fight for the vision of God? I pray you will. In fact, join me in prayer for that end. Lord, I just want to pray for all of my friends who have been burned by people. And I know it's most. And some of us have tried a group and it was a disaster. And we've had abuse come our way and people, friends, turning their back on us. And it's so tempting to just give up on the vision altogether. God, minister to those hurting people with your healing balm even now. Love on them. Heal them. And give them hope for community anew. Please, God, stir each of us with a glorious understanding of what you're striving to make relationally in our midst. And give us the tenacity to fight for that both now and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. And God, we cry 
that the Compass Church would increasingly be a people who live like that church in Athens that Aristides saw and described. May that description be increasingly true of us. May people say, you got to study this group because there's something of the divine in the midst of them. That's what we long to be, Lord, because we know that's what you long for us to be. Make us so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.